Section 21 of The Junior Classics, Volume 9, Stories of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Tightrope by Albert W. Tolman My highest ambition at seventeen, said the linotype operator, was to become a professional acrobat. I then lived with my parents on a farm near the manufacturing town of N. All my spare time was spent in vaulting, jumping, turning handsprings, and practicing other feats of strength and agility. On the 4th of July, a traveling tightrope performer, Signor Lupini of Verona, as the posters called him, was to display his skill on a rope above the river that flowed through the town. He arrived with two assistants on the afternoon of July 3rd, and a crowd of boys, myself among them, met him at the railroad station. We saw a spare, wiry man, above the ordinary height, light-complexioned, with steely blue eyes. He looked us over inquiringly. "'Boys,' said he, "'I need some young fellow to help me tomorrow. Who wants to be wheeled across the rope in a barrow?' The others hung back, but I jumped at the chance. "'I do!' I exclaimed quickly. He seemed pleased as he ran his eyes over me. I was of medium height, with good muscles. "'All right,' he said. "'Come to the hotel at seven, and I'll tell you what's wanted.' At the stroke of the hour I was on hand, and he explained my duties. He then pulled a ten-dollar bill from his pocket. "'That's yours at nine tomorrow night, if you do your work well.' he said. Now go home and sleep soundly. My parents were spending the fourth with cousins in a neighboring town, so I was alone in the house. I went to bed early, but until long after midnight excitement kept me from getting a single wink. The next day I was on hand bright and early. I helped stretch the rope between two mill roofs, ran errands, and made myself generally useful. When not busy, I hung about, watching my employer. He certainly was an artist in his line, a man without bravado, either all nerves or none at all. I could not help thinking, too, that for an Italian he spoke English remarkably well. At half-past two, a carriage took us from the hotel to the western mill. We dressed in the loft. The signor donned his tinsel-spangled tights, I figured as clown in an old stovepipe hat and white cotton suit, liberally besprinkled with stars of red and green. The same color streaked my face. As we clambered through the scuttle, the crowds lining the bridges and banks set up a shout, and the town band on the other mill began playing the Star-Spangled Banner. Sharp at three o'clock, the music stopped. The assistant on our roof advanced to the edge, fired six blank cartridges from a self-cocking revolver, and shouted this magniloquent announcement through a megaphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the celebrated Signor Lupini will now illustrate his art, assisted by Rinaldo Nobisco, the famous clown, recently secured from the London Hippodrome, ladies and gentlemen, at great trouble and expense. Whistles and catcalls from the boys below greeted this absurd reference to me, and I felt rather foolish. Signor Lupini stepped briskly forward. 
bowed to his audience, and was soon promenading along the spidery line between the two cornices. Aided by a long balancing pole, he stood on one foot, knelt, lay down, walked across blindfold, and performed many other marvelous feats. His perfect control of nerve and muscle fascinated me. I did not realize that his facility came from years of toilsome practice. Here he was calling for me. I resolved to stretch a rope the very next day between the beams over the haymow. During the Signor's exhibition, the crowd was very quiet, and the band did not play. It was only when he was once more safe upon the roof that their long restrained applause broke forth, and the band struck up, Hail to the Chief! He rested a few minutes, and then motioned to me to make ready. Among our paraphernalia was a strong light wheelbarrow, with a tire grooved to fit the rope. I began to feel a little shaky, but there was no time to indulge this emotion, for my employer exclaimed, All aboard, my boy, and remember, a stiff upper lip. I seated myself, facing forward, my feet dangling on each side of the wheel. Signor Lupini, stooping, gripped the handles. Sit steady, he said. Don't wink one eye unless you wink the other at the same time. He ran me a few turns round the graveled surface, then flicked the wheel dexterously up on the rope and headed straight for the edge. Keep perfectly still, he adjured me, and you're as safe as you'll be on the street. For all my assumption of coolness, I was frightened half out of my wits. I shut my eyes for a moment, and when I opened them we were fairly out on the tremulous hemp. Don't look down, cautioned the senor. Face straight forward, sit tight. Hardly daring to breathe, I stiffened myself as if I were in a plaster cast. I could see the narrow line just ahead buckle slightly at the approach of the wheel. How long that two hundred feet seemed! Slowly, surely, we drew near the roof. The tire jolted against the cornice. In two or three seconds we were safely on the gravel. Then the band blared out and the crowd set off explosives. My fright was over, and I felt proud as a peacock. On the trip back, my employer made me sit facing him, and I had a good chance to admire the easy, effortless play of his wiry muscles. He was a thorough gymnast, a man of steel and India rubber. After several other trips, during which I occupied different positions on the barrow, we went back to the hotel. Promptly at eight, we emerged again through the scuttle. A crowd bigger than that of the afternoon had gathered, and a roar of applause greeted us. I say us, for by this time I felt myself to be almost as important as Signor Lupini. My head was completely turned. The evening performance possessed certain novel features. Tin pans of red fire stood on each cornice, and along the bridge rails had been stationed a half-dozen boys liberally supplied with rockets and Roman candles. The master of ceremonies fired an introductory volley with his revolver. Light up, Jimmy, he shouted to his associate across the river, at the same time touched a match to the pan beside him. Jimmy obeyed. A deep red glow illuminated the scene, flashing from the mill windows and revealing the human clusters on bridges and banks. As in the afternoon, Signor Limpini began with a few feats performed alone, the blaze of fireworks making his spangled tights glitter. I waited impatiently for our duel performance, thirsting for some of the applause. Finally my turn came, and the Signor wheeled me back and forth several times. 
So great was my confidence in him that I had forgotten my nervousness. At last nine o'clock was near. Now, my boy, said my employer, will wind up with something I don't try very often. I see you have good grit. He screwed to the barrow sides a light, strong chair of steel, its seat a yard in the air. After helping me into this, he passed me a long-handled pan of red fire. We were to close in a blaze of glory. Keep cool, said he, and we'll give him something to look at. He trundled me up to the cornice. His assistant dropped a lighted lucifer into the pan, and we moved out on the rope amid the crimson glare and the whizzing of rockets. The crowd yelled, and one of the boys setting off fireworks from the lower bridge lost his head. Whish! A badly aimed rocket shot not five feet over our heads, showering us with sparks. A little lower, and it would have dashed us from the rope. Signor Lupini drew a quick breath. I cringed in my steel chair, but still kept tight hold of the panhandle. The sudden fright set my teeth chattering. My employer noticed my trepidation. "'Keep quiet, my boy, and we'll get over all right,' said he, reassuringly, cool as a cucumber. On we rolled, smoothly and steadily. We were about halfway across when the unlucky rocketeer on the lower bridge outdid his previous blunder. A warning shriek blended with the swish of a projectile. I dared not turn my head, but a sidelong glance revealed a fiery comet headed straight towards us. Signor Lupini saw it too, and could not repress a cry of alarm. The next second it was upon us. I shut my eyes, convinced that we were lost. A whir, a rushing of flame, a slight shock. The apparition had passed, and we were still on the rope. I was hardly daring to congratulate myself when my heart was chilled by a low groan behind me. The barrow wabbled. The signor was trembling violently, swaying, reeling like a drunken man. Every throb of his body came to me through the tight-clutched handles. Something fearful must have happened. I clung to the chair arms in sheer paralysis of horror. An accident would hurl us down seventy-five feet into the river, where drowning or maiming worse than death awaited us. We moved a few feet farther, then stopped. The barrow swayed, as if about to overturn, another groan from the signor. I would have questioned him, but the words died in my throat. Perhaps he had been pierced by the rocket, and might at any instant fall unconscious. Cries of horror rose from the spectators. The rockets and Roman candles ceased. The entertainment threatened to become a tragedy. Again we started, moving intermittently. Now a few quick steps would fill me with the dread of being flung off. Now we almost stopped, and I feared we should never go on. Before and behind us fizzled the red fire. Signor Lupini's feet shuffled on the rope. His breath came hard. Not a word in explanation, but always those terrible groans. My hair bristled. With straining eyes, I stared ahead into the red glare on the approaching mill. How slowly the distance lessened. On the roof stood Jimmy, gazing at us, pale and open-mouthed. The speechless horror on his face reflected our peril. The cornice was only ten feet off. Signor Lupini thrust the barrow suddenly forward. A second later, the wheel grated on the gravel. It was none too soon. As a long sigh of relief rose from the spellbound crowds, the gymnast collapsed into a writhing heap. It took three men to get him down through the scuttle and into the carriage that conveyed him to his hotel. 
the rocket had struck his right calf a glancing blow. His skill had enabled him to withstand a shock that would have overthrown a clumsier man. But his muscles, steeled to resist, had cramped violently, and we had been in deadly peril all the way across. Two lives had hung on his ability to resist the agonizing pains and preserve his poise. That last hundred feet decided me that I didn't care to be a professional acrobat. The tightrope was never stretched between the beams of the haymow. End of section 21